0: God, we thank you that you are the God who saves, that you are the God who changes us. We pray that you continue to transform our minds, transform our hearts. Give us, Father, we don't want stony hearts, stony hearts. We want fleshy hearts, soft hearts with open eyes and open ears to respond to you and the world around us. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be here with you guys today. Um, That's a little hot. You can bring that down, Ronnie. I'm yelling. Um, Stop yelling. Stop yelling. My name's Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here. We got a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to get right to it. Uh, Today's sermon title is called Something's Different. Now, I don't have a lot in the way of introduction because there's a huge chunk of scripture we're dealing with. We're dealing with close to 40 verses today. Um, I won't read them all. Don't worry. (laughs) But... (laughs) You may not realize it, but redemption and transformation are the most important, compelling part of a good story. I mean, in every good movie, there is a central theme. Among other themes, there is going to be a central theme of redemption woven into the plot. I mean, think about your favorite movie. You could probably pick out, if you really think about it, one of your favorite parts is this idea of transformation where somebody who is dark is transferred and transitioned into a character of light or goodness. And the same thing is true in real life. Transformation is actually where inspiration lives. And when there is undeniable, tangible, objective evidence of change... In lives, whenever there is evidence of this beautiful metamorphosis of God changing us into Christ's image, it is the place where we really start to learn what it means to survive in Egypt. For those of you that aren't aware, Egypt is a metaphor for the world as we've been studying this life of Joseph. Surviving in Egypt is a way of saying how we survive in this world day to day. The reason that transformation is so important it's because subconsciously we can all relate to the story, the idea of transformation or redemption. Why? Because we know it is what we ultimately desire to be, which is transform. <clears throat> Even those who don't believe in our Savior Jesus want to be changed. They want to be made better. They want to transition to being a better person. Nobody says, I want to continue to be the worst possible version of myself for the rest of my life. But what's really cool is when we see it begin to happen in others, the reason it is so inspiring is because it is actual, tangible proof that God is working. It encourages, inspires, motivates, and gives us assurance that we are not alone. So that's going to be the focus over the next few weeks a story of transformation that frankly just blew me away. So, we're going through a lot of passage, a lot of the passage today. I'm not going to read verses 26 through 38 of 42. I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you. It's been a rough couple months. God has used a physical famine to point to the spiritual famine and hopelessness that Joseph's brothers and their father Jacob are in. Remember, if you remember correctly in the story, Joseph is now basically in charge of Egypt, and his brothers come, they don't know it's him. And he treats them harshly based upon what they've done to him in the past. And he's testing them. And his testing has brought their sin of selling him into slavery and lying about it into the forefront of their minds. Then they spent some time in jail. And their time in confinement has led to them confessing to one another their sin against their brother. We see that in Genesis 42, verse 21. They say, look, the reason all this has happened to us is because of what we did to our brother." joseph so they get the grain from joseph we talked about that last week and they got their camels and they're going home and halfway home one brother finds that the money he was supposed to pay for the grain has been put back into his sack that's a little bit frightening how in the world wait a minute how did my money that i was supposed to give to to that ruler that pharaoh put in charge of the grain which was their brother they didn't realize it how did that get back into my bag So these guys come home. Remember what's happened. Joseph has said, look, I'm going to keep your brother Simeon. And if you really are who you say you are, you'll bring your youngest brother Benjamin back to prove it. And then I'll release Simeon. So they get home and they see their father, Jacob. You know, they've been through this before. Where they go to their father and say, Dad, listen, I got a story to tell you. One of our brothers, one of your boys, he's not with us anymore. This time is different, though. They actually tell Jacob exactly what happens. Listen, this guy running running Egypt now accuses us of being spies, and he took Simeon, and he's being held there until we return with Benjamin to prove that we are who we say we are. And, Dad, we've desperately got to go back to Egypt. We've got to return this money, and we've got to get Simeon back. Suddenly, they have one singular focus, these brothers. They have one singular focus in life. Return to Egypt with the money and with Benjamin to save Simeon, no matter what the cost. So Jacob, dad, are you up for it? Can you let us? We've got to go back. Jacob says, nah, you've killed enough sons already. And he says, my my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He's thinking Joseph. He thinks his brother Joseph is dead. He's not. And now my other son... Benjamin is the only one left. You see this? It is clear favoritism. He's not the only son he has left. He has 12 sons. He thinks one is dead. He says, I'm not going to let you take my last son. Dad, we're your sons. Can you imagine how much that must have hurt them to hear that? Still clear favoritism over the sons born to Rachel instead of Leah. All right, so today's passage, Genesis 43, 1 to 15. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, okay, go and buy, buy us a little food. He goes, look, you can't take Benjamin back, but just go and get a little more grain. Maybe the famine will stop. You're going to have to go back and buy more. But Judah says to him, the man in charge solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you, talking about Benjamin. If you will send our brother with us, then we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Jacob said, Israel, Jacob, same person. Why did you treat me so badly as to tell this man you had other brothers? Why did you tell him you had other brothers? Why did you just be quiet about it? And the the brothers respond. They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah says to Jacob, his father, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also all your grandkids. I will be a pledge of safety from my hand. This is Judah talking. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. In other words, kill me. If we had not delayed, we could have gone there and back twice already, Dad. Then their father Jacob said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to them, a little balm, a little honey, a little gum, a little myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Bring a peace offering. Then take double the money with you. Remember, all the money was stuffed back in their bags. Jacob says, take this gift, and whatever money they left in the bags, take double with you so you can buy more. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Of course, it wasn't. Joseph put it there on purpose to see if they were honest. Take also your brother... Benjamin, arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother, Simeon, and Benjamin, and ask for me if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He says, look, whatever happens, happens now. I'm, I'm, I'm in a bad spot here. So the men took this present, and they took the double money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt to stand before Joseph. <clears throat> History of this passage. I want you to see this is a desperate family. Jacob says, you lost Joseph, you left Simeon behind, and now you want to go back with Benjamin too? No way, you must think I'm crazy. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, three times? Uh Uh-uh. Jacob was afraid when the money was found in the sacks from Egypt, but he did not fear fear the divine retribution like his sons did. I think it's clear he's afraid that his sons... Had some grand plan of deception. After all, if you remember the stories at all, that's what Jacob was. He was a deceiver, like father, like sons. And first, Reuben tries to implore his dad, listen, dad, trust me. I swear on the life of my kids. If we don't bring back Benjamin and Simeon, you kill your grandkids that belong to me. That's kind of a ridiculous offer. And Jacob rejects that I'm not going to kill my grandkids because you screw up. No way he's going to trust any of Leah's kids after what they did before. But frankly, he's out of options. Now things have gotten worse. He is faced with the choice of starvation for his family or sending his brothers out to buy more food. He sends them to Egypt to buy more grain. But they can't go back without Benjamin and some money. And Judah explains, Dad, this is a life and death scenario. I don't think you understand. I'm willing to bear the blame if it doesn't work. Just a little reminder, Judah is the line of Jesus. There's fascinating typology here at work. Dad, send me. Hold me responsible. I will bring Benjamin and Simeon back. Think about this. A guy that had sold his brother into slavery is now willing to save his other brothers at the cost of his own life. Dad, how are we supposed to know this is going to happen? We didn't do it on purpose. This is not a grand plan or a scheme to get you to get rid of Benjamin because we hate him just like we hated his brother Joseph. That's not what's going on. But listen, Dad, if we show up without Benjamin and the money, we are going to go to jail. Jacob has no choice. He must risk Benjamin for the sake of Simeon and to avoid starvation for his family. Judah finally convinces him, explaining we could have made two trips in the time it has taken us over the last couple of months to argue this. It's been two months. What I want you to see here is these are different brothers. Notice that this time when they return to Jacob, they didn't lie to their dad. They tell the complete entire truth. It's a very similar temptation, frankly, as to what they faced with Joseph. Joseph money over a brother, but the actions are very different now. Brothers that once felt justified in selling their youngest brother into slavery because of their jealousy, that felt justified to cover their own backside with an elaborate scheme of how Joseph was eaten by a beast. Now... They are willing to sacrifice their own kids or their own lives to assure the safety of both their other brothers and the welfare of their family. It would have been easy just to leave and fend for themselves and go incognito and buy grain just for them and their kids. But no, these are different brothers now. It's amazing. And so they returned to Egypt. Notice this time when they returned, they had been truthful. And now they start a very long, treacherous journey back to Egypt with noble intentions of honoring their dysfunctional, favoritistic father. They had the honorable intention of rescuing their brother and returning all the money that was accidentally put in their sacks. Just so you understand how far this is. The travel they have to go from Canaan to where the capital is, where they buy grain and run into Joseph, is probably about 200 miles no big deal, right? Just hop in the minivan and go. This is a rough trip, like from Sarasota to Miami, except over camels and rough terrain, in the heat, during a drought. This trip comes at great personal risk, not to mention, at the very least, severe discomfort. Not to mention also the fact that Judah has guaranteed his father a good outcome. And if it doesn't happen, hold me responsible. Put me to death for murder. This is without question, listen to this. This is without question the most important task these men have ever or will ever undertake. A lot is riding on their faithfulness and their transformed hearts. In many respects, this is the ultimate purpose for their whole lives. Ordained by God before they were even born. This is what's going on now. This treacherous trip to Egypt full of unknowns. So that's the history. What about the spiritual? Spiritual. What about God? What is he doing? And why and how does he do it? I want to study God's sovereign grace in Egypt. First of all, it's very clear God has been working. <clears throat> I want to read this verse to you. Romans eight twenty-eight 30 Here's what it says. And we know, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, in the Greek it actually says those who are the called. Fascinating. Those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what's going on. God has been working. It is crucial that we recognize this. It's been very easy to focus on Joseph this whole time. Oh, Joseph, good, brother's bad. But it's important that we recognize God's hand has been at work not just in Joseph, but over the past 25 years since they sold him into slavery, he's also been working in their lives. Somehow the Spirit of God has caused a glorious, miraculous change in their hearts. For 25 years, God has been working. He's been calling. He's been transforming. He's been molding. He's been shaping these men, changing their values. And God has not brought them to a place to face their sin against Joseph as some sort of eye for an eye situation. He's not looking to give them retribution for what they did. No, he is looking to give them through this confrontation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He's trying to give them an opportunity to see what he has done in their hearts. In fact, God has been lovingly, personally involved with the spirituality of these scoundrels just as much as he has been in Joseph. And through his sovereignty, through his love, through his mercy, through his grace, God uses an impersonal Egyptian famine for his means of redemption. He has taken the impersonal hardships of Egypt and molded them into a personal journey of transformation for these really bad brothers. A personal, infinite God that loves his called out children and seeks to save and sanctify them despite everything that Egypt puts in his way. He is using everything and anything necessary to make sure what? That Joseph's brothers are turned into Christ like children. And what we see is relentless repentance on their part. These brothers aren't the same fraternal slave traders they were before. There is every thinkable pressure still working to influence them to return to their deceptive behavior of 25 years ago. All the things that made them hate Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin, are still there. In that regard, Egypt hasn't changed at all. They still deal deal with Jacob's blatant favoritism of Rachel's boys over them But jealousy no longer rules them. There is still real danger even in taking this treacherous journey back to Egypt. But fear no longer rules them. There is still temptation to look out for themselves. But selfishness no longer rules them. Now a desire to do the right thing motivates them. They are relentlessly for two months, they've been trying to tell their dad, let us go, let us go. No way. Yes, no, yes. Please, dad. Please, dad. They are relentlessly committed to doing everything they can to get Simeon and Benjamin back safely to bring food to their father's house and return the money that was accidentally left in their sacks. They now have a love for their brothers. They now have integrity with money and honor for their dysfunctional father. It's amazing. He's not a good dad, but they're trying to be good kids. When you compare the brothers of chapter 43 with the brothers of chapter 37, it's a stunning transformation. And all of this, this sovereign grace that God works in their lives, was for our benefit. I mean, usually when we think of the story of Joseph, we only remember the treachery of the brothers. Right? I mean, that's the first thing we think. Yeah, life, life, life of Joseph, cool story. Brothers bad, but Joseph won in the end. But the role these brothers play, get this now, this treacherous journey they're about to go on, the role these brothers play ends up being just as important to God's plan for his church as Joseph was. If God does not make them faithful in these journeys to Egypt, our Savior from the line of Judah, is never born. And we are not here today. I have to say, the work that God did in the hearts of Joseph's brothers is just as inspirational as what he did with Joseph. (coughs) So let's talk about the personal side of this, excuse me. (coughs) I wanna talk about the miracle of transformation. So this is my social media campaign this week. The best part of Egypt is seeing God transform lives in spite of Egypt. So for me, you can see why this might be the most exciting part of the story. Why? Why is this redemption part? (coughs) Because if we're honest, if you really are honest, you'll admit we're more like the scoundrel brothers than we are, Joseph. I mean, we like to... Identified with Joseph, but he's sort of like a one in a million guy, isn't he? With his talents, his skills. Most of us aren't Joseph. Now, below the surface, frankly, sometimes at the surface, we are the dysfunctional sons of Jacob, those other 11. Church, this is why we love stories of redemption, because we can relate to them being something we need or perhaps, by God's grace, something maybe we have experienced. So that's the fun part, but here's the problem. There's Egyptian resistance all along. Our tendency is to focus on our worldly circumstances as it relates to God's blessing. You know, we look at that, We look for tangible evidence of God's presence in our lives, like jobs, money, family. But let's face it, those things are so random and can be gone just like that. And frankly, those things we think are blessing are often fleeting and frankly disappointing. Because here's why. Egypt is not designed to make us more like Jesus. It's designed to make us more like Egypt. That's what Egypt wants to do. And Egypt relentlessly seeks to make us like Egypt. Egypt has no stake nor interest in helping us become more like Christ. It doesn't want us to be transformed. It wants us to be comfortable. And to really get a handle on how to survive in Egypt, we need to become more focused on what God is doing in our hearts and the hearts of those around us because there is relentless intervention. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. This is a great concept. Joseph's brothers had wandered far, but God patiently for 25 years brings them back And Egypt is fighting him all along the way. And just like with us, Egypt tries to pull us away daily. But yet we have a God working to complete the good work he began and he will not stop until the day of salvation no matter how far we try to wander no matter how strong the pull Egypt is he's going to use whatever necessary means it takes all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose no matter what it's going to happen Egypt will not win when it comes to our hearts <coughs> This allows you to be less intimidated by Egypt. Frankly, it allows you to be less enamored by Egypt as well because there's an all-powerful, personal, intimate God intent on bringing you to the day of salvation regardless of what Egypt may have in store. So that's the relentless intervention side of transformation. And then there's this transformed hearts part. How is it that God exactly overcomes the influence of Egypt in us? How does he do it? What actually happens that takes us from being wretched, scoundrel brothers and sisters and turns us into children of God? Because he gives us new hearts and new minds by giving us new values and desires that align with his by reaching down and making us new. Ezekiel 11, verses 19 to 20. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why? That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Here's what he does. He takes sinful, fallen, unstable, angry, jealous, bitter, selfish, Egyptian loving brothers and sisters and transforms us step by step into a bold statement for all who can see it about the power of redemption. And somehow God cuts through the Egyptian focus and the Egyptian distractions and transforms us into the image of his son. I will tell you some of the most inspirational moments in my walk. Let me just indulge myself with just a little bit. I'm just going to tell you. When I first started working as a pastor, the first year was really hard. You know, I thought, you know, this is easy. This ministry stuff. It was not easy. I was a youth pastor. That's the hardest job on a church staff, by the way, just so you know, it's ridiculously hard because everybody wants you to relate to the kids, but they also want you to be polished enough to relate to the parents And also, we want you to reach out to the kids who don't go to church, but don't bring them around our kids. You know what I'm saying? They they want you to do everything. And also, by the way, you should be able to teach. Hey, can you play guitar? We would love for you to do a little bit more. Also, can you be in charge of, like, evangelism? There's a lot going on, and I was not very good at it. And I was struggling. I was hurting. Then an elder pulled me aside one day. says, Joe, i got to tell you, in the last nine months... I have really seen God working in your life. Like it just it floored me like, wow, somebody sees God changing my heart. And it inspired me to continue to be more and more faithful. Let me read this verse to you in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. If any of you guys remember, the Corinthians was not a really good church. We did a whole series on 2 Corinthians. They were struggling with quite a bit. But here's what Paul says. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see what Paul does here? he recognizes and points out evidence of transformation. Wouldn't your heart soar if people told you that? Well, if your heart would soar, then why are you withholding it from blessing others in that way? Why aren't we actively as a church looking for evidence of transformation and pointing it out to each other? Hey, see that? That's God working in your life. You know, some of you feel like you're not doing well in Egypt. You're struggling. You're depressed. You're discouraged. You think it's because of your circumstances. I don't like this particular job, or I don't like this particular relationship. My car keeps breaking down. You think that's the reason you're struggling. No. The reason you're struggling is you haven't felt transformed in a long time. I can promise you this, no matter what egypt brings if you have evidence and people point out evidence that god is working in your heart and life not only will you survive in egypt you will thrive this is a key component to living the grace life looking for evidence of transformed hearts and lives and celebrating it's the best most inspiring part of surviving egypt And I love over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about Judah and the brothers. And some of the stuff they do, it's like, wow. I mean, Joseph really puts them to the test. And it is amazing how these once selfish slave traders turn into righteous, selfless, loving brothers. It's an amazing story. I hope that your stories will amaze one another. Let's stop being distracted by Egypt and look for what's really cool about Egypt. And that is when God works to transform hearts and lives. Dad, we're begging you, we're asking you, we're pleading with you, please transform us according to your will. Continue to call us out of darkness into light. Lord, we pray that there would just be overwhelming evidence that we as a church, not just individually but corporately, are being changed and transformed into something different. We pray that when people look at us, they would say, wow, that's not how I remember them a year ago. We pray that you would continue to bless us with difficulties that make us more like your son.